Hey there on the Merits listeners, this is your host David Schultz. We have a special podcast for you today. Kimberly Robinson and Lydia Wheeler, who host our sister podcast Cases and Controversies, which is all about the Supreme Court, just did a big investigation into the death penalty and the role the court plays there. So we're going to present that podcast to you in full. If you're into SCOTUS stuff, definitely go check them out. They're at Cases and Controversies. Anyway, here's the episode. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. So we've got a special episode for you today about the death penalty and the role that the Supreme Court plays here. We interviewed a bunch of people about this, everyone from death row attorneys to a former SCOTUS clerk, and you'll hear from them in a bit. The reason we're doing this now is because later this week, the court could do something it almost never does. Agree to hear an appeal in a capital case. The case involves Richard Glossop, who's on death row in Oklahoma after being convicted way back in 1998 of hiring a man to kill the owner of the motel he managed. Richard, how many execution dates have you had? Nine. If the court grants cert, that means that Glossop's attorney will get a chance to argue his case on the merits later this term. But if it doesn't, Glossop's fate is uncertain, and he'll likely have to return to the Oklahoma judicial system. He points to lost or destroyed evidence never seen by a jury, and a detective asking leading questions to Glossop's co-defendant, Justin Sneed, which changed his testimony. He was their key witness. So if you take his testimony, and it's a flawed testimony, how can you trust anything else that he said? We just published a story about Glossop's case, and about why it's become so rare for the court to agree to hear capital cases. You can go check that out on our website. But for this podcast, we wanted to take a step back and, like Kimberly said, examine the role the court plays in administering the death penalty. And the big takeaway we got from the interviews we did is this. These cases can move really slowly for a long time and then all of a sudden move really, really fast. So first, let's back up and get a little refresher for those who may not be aware. In any matter, but especially in capital cases, the Supreme Court is the court of last resort. That means whether you were tried in a state court or in a federal one, you have the right to ask SCOTUS to review your case. In the majority of death penalty cases, the court comes in at the end of the legal process, the very end. Your case has been appealed for years, even decades maybe, and you're just asking the court for an emergency stay of execution to buy yourself some more time. These stay requests come through the court's so-called shadow docket, which are time-sensitive issues the court has to rule on before they've been fully briefed and argued. Unfortunately, you know, bad law gets made in capital cases all the time coming up through this emergency litigation. That's Kelly Henry, an attorney with the Federal Public Defender's Office who specializes in death penalty appeals. She says last-minute stay requests don't give attorneys like her an opportunity to expand the evidentiary record or really do any kind of sophisticated lawyering. Kelly said that was definitely the case for one of her recent clients, Lisa Montgomery. In Lisa's case, you know, we had four separate stays of execution within the last 48 hours, all of which just got picked off um, one by one. And, you know, through the course of my career, I've, I've represented many folks who've been executed and many folks who got stays of execution. I've had clients get stays of execution with, you know, 20 minutes left before their execution dates. Montgomery was executed at the end of the Trump administration, one of 13 federal executions that took place just before President Joe Biden took office. This is the first time in nearly seven decades that the U.S. government has put a female inmate to death. 
because this litigation comes up piecemeal and it comes up in these emergency applications, the record is never fully developed. So it's, you know, whatever case gets there first and, you know, maybe the record isn't as developed as you want in that case. And that's not necessarily the fault of, of the litigants. It's also not an ideal situation for the justices and their clerks, who are used to having weeks, if not months, to mull over a case. Matthew Tonkson was a clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in 2011, and he says one of the first matters assigned to him was a death penalty case that was in its final stages. I remember well that first meeting with the administrator in charge of the death penalty docket and them assigning us, you know, okay, Matt, you know, this is your um, execution. They would write my name down right next to the name of the person to be executed. So that was my first experience with sort of the surreal nature of it. Matthew's now a law professor at the University of Utah. He was only involved in this matter at the very end of the process. But he says in some ways, it still haunts him. The very first execution that I did research for, I had set a calendar reminder for the time of the execution just so I could stay on top of it, so I wouldn't forget things, so I wouldn't be late. We had completed the process. We, um, you know, I gave my recommendation. Justice Ginsburg was also opposed to the death penalty, but she followed the law. We said, yep, this, uh, we deny this claim or we vote to deny this claim. It was unanimous vote. And then the execution went forward. And, and, you know, we had gotten the votes out a few hours before the execution. And I'd sort of gone back to my normal work. And then this notification pops up on my screen that this person's being executed at that time. And it really sort of caught me unprepared. To some extent, this type of last-minute work is unavoidable. Death row attorneys have to keep filing until there's nothing left to file. But also, unlike with other types of law, you can't go around looking to represent a client with a perfect fact pattern. Here's Eric Friedman, a law professor at Hofstra University. Death penalty has this unique problem that with your individual client's life on the line, you are not in a position to say the issue we want to raise is best raised by some other guy in some other case at some other time, so you'll just have to be executed now. But this isn't the whole story. The other factor shaping the development of death penalty law has been the court itself. In the past 10 years, the court issued opinions that eliminated several options death row inmates had to get their cases heard. In a case called Shin last year, the court made it harder for inmates to raise a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel in federal court if their state attorneys didn't provide effective assistance. And in 2019's Bucklew, the court said an inmate is not entitled to a painless death, and as a result, the justices removed a lot of the Eighth Amendment arguments that these individuals are making. Very briefly, the Eighth Amendment has never been understood to guarantee an inmate a painless death. That's a luxury not guaranteed to many people. So, if the court is seeing more emergency capital petitions, Friedman says it's partly because the path to getting hurt on the merits has now become so narrow. They have created a legalistic barbed wire field of obstacles to procedures that will vindicate the ultimate claims of the capital defendants. So because death row inmates are struggling to get hurt on the merits, their only option is to ask for 11th hour reprieves. And their odds aren't good. Using Bloomberg Law's docketing system and our own reporting, we ran the numbers and found 270 emergency requests over the last 10 years. And of those, there were only 11 instances in which the court granted a stay of execution. To drive home just how low that number is, 
18 times during that period, the court intervened and lifted a stay issued by a lower court. To put it another way, that means the justices are more likely to step in and order an execution to take place than they are to stop an execution. That's a striking trend, considering just a few years ago, several justices, including former Justice Stephen Breyer, signaled a willingness to outlaw the death penalty altogether. Here's Robin Marr, the head of the Death Penalty Information Center, and a former death row attorney herself. Many people believed that we were going to see the end of the death penalty within a few years because there seemed to be a majority of members on the court who believed that the death penalty was not constitutional, either in application or for other reasons. That turned out not to be the case. And instead, I think we've sort of swung in the other direction. Over the last decade, an average of almost 24 executions got carried out each year, according to data from Robin's organization. And there are more than 2,300 inmates on death row right now. A big reason the court's view on the death penalty shifted is that there's now a strong 6-3 conservative majority on the court that tends to side with the government on criminal issues. Robin says there was this moment when she realized things had changed on the court, and it actually came in a prior case involving Richard Glossop. Yes, that's right. Glossop is one of the few people to go before the Supreme Court in a capital case, lose, and then live long enough to actually bring another case to the court. Back in 2015, he and other inmates came to the Supreme Court with a dispute about lethal injection drugs. As a result of anti-death penalty activism in the U.S. and abroad, these drugs have become really difficult for states to obtain. And this led some of the states to use less proven alternative drugs, which the inmates argued was a cruel and unusual punishment. But Robin says it seems like the justices were pinning the blame for the drug shortages directly on Glossop and his fellow inmates. Justice Alito said anti-death penalty advocates were waging a guerrilla war. I was present for that oral argument, and I, I remember clearly my jaw dropping open uh, at the questioning of the defense attorney. Is it appropriate for the judiciary <clears throat> to countenance what amounts to a guerrilla war against the death penalty? There were a few things that were sort of striking about that. One is that term was, was quite unusual to use. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, is that there seemed to be confusion about the efforts of advocates who had an agenda of their own and the person standing at the podium who was representing a person on death row. Alito, by the way, wrote the majority opinion against Glossop and his fellow inmates in that case. Since that loss, Glossop has been trying to fend off an execution that, at times, seemed imminent. He's currently on his ninth stay of execution, and his lawyer John Mills with the firm Phillips Black says the psychological toll has been almost unbearable. It's torture, for him, from his perspective at least, it's torture. Um, he has had what he thought was going to be his last meal three times. He said goodbye to those closest to him three times. He's been isolated from the people who he's lived next to for decades nine times. He's had to watch the guards who will be responsible for um, conducting his execution uh, practice executions, practice what will be his execution. The psychological toll is unbelievable, uh, and it has weighed on him and has been uh, front of mind for all of us uh, representing him really for a long time now. But there are reasons to believe that this time around will be different. Oklahoma's own attorney general, Gettner Drummond, 
now admits there were major flaws at his trial, with the state failing to disclose that their star witness had serious psychiatric problems. In the attorney general's letter to the pardon and parole board, he says, quote, The jury was not aware of the entire truth due to Mr. Sneed's false testimony and the state's failure to correct his testimony. Attorney general According to Mills, this is exactly why the Supreme Court should not take a hands-off approach in capital cases. Because mistakes like this can and do happen at the state level. For a long time, there was a sense that even in states where the state Supreme Court was likely to be hostile, there was at least a backstop at the United States Supreme Court. And if the states thumb their nose at the requirements of the Constitution, then maybe you could convince the Supreme Court to step in. And what I hope doesn't happen or doesn't continue to happen is that the court signs off on executions that it knows have constitutional problems. Because when that happens, it encourages lawlessness, encourages disregard for the court's precedents and for the Constitution. But that doesn't seem to be the way the current court sees it. In the court's opinion in Bucklew, Justice Gorsuch told lower courts to be skeptical of prisoners using the federal courts as a delay tactic. He said last-minute stays should be, quote, the extreme exception, not the norm. Zach Smith, head of the Supreme Court Advocacy Program at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, says that the justices are not signing off on executions they know are flawed. But, he says, they aren't clearing up all the ambiguity in death penalty law either. And that ambiguity is what's driving all these last-minute actions. Smith says the court should actually take up more capital cases on the merits to clear this up, something Justice Thomas has also been pushing for. He's been advocating for the court to take some of these cases that come before the court, even some of these last-minute cases, to clarify the law in this area, to make clear what is required uh, in order for someone to state a viable uh, Eighth Amendment method of execution claim. Because I think in Justice Thomas's view, uh, if the court lays down clear rules, if it clarifies some of the areas of law that are very confused right now surrounding death penalty litigation, that could help things run more smoothly, make the law more clear, and avoid some of these last-minute disputes that are currently coming before the court. One thing everyone we spoke to agreed on, both Smith and the anti-death penalty advocates, is that we could use some more clarity here from the court. What they didn't agree on is whether clarity is worth sacrificing other ideals. Robin Marr, the head of the Death Penalty Information Center, says the court's current mindset can be summed up more or less with one word. Finality. Finality for victims, for their families. The recent decisions by the court seem to echo the importance of finality over fairness even and the protection of constitutional rights. We'll find out sometime later this week or early next week what Richard Glossop's fate will be. That's when the court will be deciding whether or not to hear his case. If it doesn't, Glossop's only option to stop the execution may be a grant of clemency from the governor. We'll be covering that decision and all the other decisions to come out of the court's so-called long conference on our website, news.bloomberglaw.com. So be sure to check that out for updates. Okay, that'll do it for today's episode. It was produced by myself, Kimberly, and David Schultz. Our editor was John Crawley, and we had special help from Matthew Schwartz. We'll be back later this week with a preview of the upcoming term, which, of course, starts on the first Monday in October. Until then, thanks so much for listening. 
I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.